Hello, I'm Anthony Sana. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. This is uh, podcast number four of Fusion Health Radio. It's the program where uh, Dr. Michael Smith and myself talk about health. He talks more. I ask a few questions. You listen. We all win. <laughs> uh, today's uh, episode, how martial arts principles apply to healing. Uh, before we get into that today, Michael, let's just give folks a recap of what we've talked about so far. If this is the first time you've listened to uh, the show or the first one you're drawn to listening to, maybe you should hear about what we've already talked about in the past. Episode one uh, was just an intro as to who we are and what we do. And we also got into a little bit of a fun geek out about how much water you should actually drink every day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I noticed my water bottle down there. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Uh, episode two was a two-part uh, series because there was just so much to say. Ten Steps to Abundant Health, uh, part one and part two. Starting with the idea of actually starting to do something to what you should actually be doing and uh, walking up the steps to, uh, to health. Episode three, the three healthiest ways of eating on earth. The Ice Age... Uh, ice Age Diet? Is that the way? Is that what you would call it? Yeah, I'd call it an Ice Age Diet uh, just because it's funny, you know, because there's the Paleo Diet and this diet is just funny, but it's actually more of an anti inflammatory diet. There you go. So the Ice Age Diet, then there's the real Paleo Diet, not to be confused with that crap you see uh, on the bookshelves. <laughs> I wouldn't call it crap, I would just call it overcooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, that, uh, that barbecued bad stuff you see in regular paleo books and then the healthy homesteader diet uh, that was in the previous podcast number three and we are here today to talk about martial arts principles and how they apply to healing so what's the idea around martial arts you've got a bit of a background with that too yeah uh yeah i've been a professional martial artist since i was 23 i started training when i was 10 uh, so i've done japanese martial arts chinese martial arts um, internal and external martial arts which is a distinction if you know what that distinction is about martial arts. Um, some Malaysian Filipino martial arts. Uh, I've had the uh, fun experience of having a martial arts school uh, on and off since I was again 23, 24. I've taught prison guards, um, corrections officers, police officers, or cops, depending on how you think about them, <laughs> and um, the special forces in Petaloa and other military, paramilitary things, and some law enforcement in the States. The United States. Um, we're in Canada, by the way, just in case that hasn't been made <laughs> clear. Uh, so yeah, I've kind of covered the range of um, learning, um, teaching traditional martial arts where you, I mean, it's with humor, wear a pajama and do a lot of bowing and stuff. Um, I've also taught the more pointy end of the stick. Do you hear that car rumbling by? Distantly. Yeah, it's not. It's just rattling my ears. Anyway, <coughs> um, I'll just leave that off. So, I'll just go back to what I was saying. So I've had the experience of teaching traditional martial arts in the sense that people are wearing uh, geese or kind of pajamas in a way. Um, and uh, there's a lot of bowing and tradition and stuff. And I have tons of respect for that. I'm not you know, poking that in the eye in any way. And I've also had the experience of teaching the more pointy end of the stick where it's really about life or death. Um, 
situations. And that honestly changed my whole trajectory as a martial artist because when I was asked to teach, uh, especially the special forces um, uh, members that I was training, it came to my attention that, you know, what I'm teaching is actually got to work instead of, okay, this is what my teacher showed me and this is a really way, good way to hold somebody down or make them uh, submit or <clears throat> here's a really good kind of strike or block or whatever. And um, that experience actually made me kind of invent my own martial arts sort of paradigm or uh, way of teaching, which I've been doing, I think, 17 years now, and that's all I teach. Um, I encourage anyone to learn any traditional martial art and you know those kind of things as well. But my again, my thing has been, I guess that's my... Uh, particular specialization and it kind of happened by accident honestly I didn't see myself 20 years ago as somebody who's you know training the military paramilitary people I just thought of myself as a professional martial artist and I had a school and I had all my different kinds of pajamas and stuff and you know little things on the wall but um it turned out that that was actually something I was very passionate about is um trial and error to actually find out what ab absolutely works essentially all of the time and it doesn't look at all like martial arts in the sense of what you'd see on TV or especially in the sense of sport fighting and stuff like that. Um, because it's over within three to five heartbeats, it's not fun. You know, but I remember we had, I was at a tournament and we had somebody filming what I was demonstrating and the guy said, this would make the worst Kung Fu movie ever because it's just like there's two guys and then there's a blurry thing and then somebody's on the ground and, you know, sort of saying, please help me. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I guess that's true because when you're doing something, you know, it's that necessarily functional and you're probably going to have to be in the combative sense dealing with more than one opponent the last thing you're going to want to do is bounce around and try and choke people up there's no lollygagging in martial arts no and in, in what i call applied combatives it's more of like martial science you know and i've been doing this like i said uh now i that's all i teach i've been doing that for 17 years and um i keep sharpening the stick in the sense that there's less to teach and there's there's less uh theory in the background I went from like 16 actual paragraphs. Now I've got it down to like a sentence. So your history, I mean, you said you've been doing this for 17 years. Uh, applied commands, I'm doing martial arts for 37 years. Okay, so somewhere in all of that, you actually picked up some books and started learning something in and around health. Uh, yeah, yes. So yeah. How, how, do they, how do they cross paths? What's the, what's the connection there? Well, the initial connection was one of my teachers said, you know, Michael, um, and he was like a 90, five-year-old little Chinese guy. It was awesome. He was actually one of Bruce Lee's teachers. He says, you know, Michael, you're quite talented at the fighting part of this, and you could hurt many people, but uh, my sense of you is you're more a healer than like a warrior, so I would encourage you to go and study medicine. And I have a friend who has this uh, oral lineage that goes back 15 generations of traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, his family has this 7,000-year-old oral tradition of Taoism. And at the time, I was really passionate about learning more about Taoism. So by fluke more than anything, I was not only inspired to learn medicine, but given an opportunity to study in a really old oral tradition. And the, the connections that you have with martial arts, that came before mm -hmm. um, your introduction to medicine but you're also a traditional Chinese medicine doctor. So was there something about martial arts that actually related to how uh, TCM sees the world? Was there some sort of, um, I don't know, were the light bulbs going off going, oh, this means this because that means that. Like, was there a way to plug both of them in? Well, there was for me. I mean, I had to learn Chinese basically to learn uh, Chinese medicine. So I'm not saying that I'm fluent in Chinese, but I had to learn enough Chinese to, you know, understand Chinese. And there's a Chinese word um, that's applied in Chinese medicine a lot. We call it zhongqi. 
And that term, the character, you know, is often translated as um, the antipathogenic chi, in the sense of the part of your body that actually fights off an infection or a flu, or deals with the pathophysiology of changes in health. Uh, and that's a pretty kind of clinical way to translate that word, but as, you know, Chinese medicine sort of tries to show up in the modern world, it's trying to translate itself in the way that um, contextually makes the most sense to people who are actually trying to get help. That the character for Zheng actually is the picture of a person or a process that's in a state of resolve or being upright and balanced and kind of focused. So hang on a sec, you say character, you mean the actual written yeah, Chinese the, character? The actual cute little thing you do with a brush. The little scribbly thing that looks like it's a Chinese word. Or the beautiful thing you could do with a pen and a piece of rice paper and some ink. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this depends on if you're if it's yeah. me or you writing. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a beautiful beautiful language, but um, so okay, I, I took you off track there. But I mean the the character you're describing what this how do you say it again? Shen Zhengqi. Zhengqi. Yeah. So like Z H E N G Q I. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. Zhengqi, and the the context is the. Um, I think it's important that it, all Chinese words are kind of experiential words. So when you say Chi and you think about it as the abstract antipathogenic thing your immune system naturally does and needs help now because you're sick, um, you know, that helps us bring our attention in on what's going on. But if you actually decide in this moment, sitting in a chair or walking down the road or whatever you're doing as listening to this podcast, and you decide to change your posture towards a person who's in a state of resolve, so there's a little bit more up in your, your posture. You're a little bit more, I don't know, beady-eyed with your gaze in the sense of I'm really keeping my attention on what matters or what, what I need to figure out. And the state of resolve has two sides to it, I think. There's the resolve in the sense that I'm going to be forthright and maintain a sense of patience and courage and willingness. And then there's a the sense of resolve, which is, okay, I'm going to find the humility to yield and allow something to change and... Um, you know, something new might come into my mind or my life as an influence that will help me resolve a past trauma, a past belief, or something else. So one's kind of like the masculine Clint Eastwood, I'll stare you down and we're going to, you know, figure this out in the masculine sense. And the other is relatively more feminine in the, in the sense that we're going to go into this sort of mysterious transformative uh, place and opportunity and see what necessarily resolves itself through change. And so the uh, the connection that you have with martial arts, with Zheng, say it again? Zheng Shi. Zheng Shi. Um, I'm reminded of how I came to accept the fact that whatever was going on in between my, you know, my mouth and my navel <laughs> on the inside was kind of broken, uh, was kind of not working right. And being very uh, accepting of the fact that it's like, okay, um, I need to correct something here. Um, I'm choosing to do something here. Uh, I'm going to stand up and pay attention to what's going on here. And I have no idea what it's going to take. So I'm also going to be pretty flexible and open to like, okay, universe, come on, this is broken. Show me some kind of indication. Uh, show me some kind of path. Yeah, I mean, I think you could as easily translate Zhong Chi into correction Chi. Yeah, interesting. So the, the idea that uh, Zhong Chi uh, relates to health I mean, it, it relates to the martial arts, I'm saying this out loud, correct me if I'm wrong, I see what you just said as it relates to the martial arts because you're always on guard or you're always paying attention to what's going on and you got to be pretty nimble and flexible, you know, because if it's one ninja coming at you or if it's a group of 10 of them, you got to deal with it appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's, you know, 
one dinner roll versus a whole loaf of bread. <laughs> you got to be, or like a whole pie or whatever it is, or a banquet or mm-hmm. Christmas dinner with your family. You got to pay attention to what's coming, coming your way, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the, um, I mean, the, the, we could talk about that for about two or three podcasts, but is it like one main thing, one core principle that sort of uh, underlines um, how that relates or how that helps the individual? So I like to make up vitamins. Like there's vitamin R for resistance training, vitamin R for rest. Okay. Uh, vitamin M for meditation. Let's call this vitamin Z or vitamin Z. I don't know if it's Z or Z. Somebody will get the chung chi to figure that out. <laughs> but the reason I would say it's like a vitamin is it's something you actually have to, on a tangible level, kind of ingest and allow to come into the space of your present experience. So... You know, say you're doing a yoga class and you're actually distracted and you'd rather be at the bar with your friends watching football, so your yoga is going to probably look less organized than it would if you were in the class and in that state of resolve to do the best possible asana or posture that you could do. And to be as meticulous with the mechanics of breathing and your uh, alignment or uh, awareness of whatever spiritual opportunity may be in, in, in a yoga class, I have to admit verbally that I've never had a yoga class or taken one, but I know they're out there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm assuming that that, that would apply to, to that experience. So um, being present to uh, the situation would be, I guess, the one thing you could do in and in, around any kind of illness or like a chronic illness is actually just sort of showing up to like, hey, this isn't working. Yeah, I, I would say the one side of it is like the the sense of being tough right but at a certain point tough becomes like rigid leather Mm. so there's toughness and then there's rigidity and then there's the yielding kind of malleability in the sense of oh i didn't know i would have to change this part of my life to resolve that part of my past uh, or something like that and then you can be just completely passive and you know trying to cope and let somebody else figure it out so it's finding that ground between toughness and, you know, yieldingness that doesn't fall into passivity or rigidity. Because somewhere in the middle, you're present, kind of playful, you're learning, uh, you're willing to change and or stick with what you know you need to stick with to move through the process of healing. And it's the same thing if you're standing toe-to-toe with somebody who may or may not decide to draw a weapon and mug you or your friend. You know, you have to be you know, willing to show up as a predatory animal, because by the way, we're scavenging primates who have turned into predators, so here we are. And you have to be willing to move towards the predatory experience, but also be willing to maybe help that person figure out why they're so freaked out right now and thinking about mugging someone. In my, um, in my life, in my experience around health and that sort of thing, I'm always looking for ways to make uh, the bigger, uh, complicated ideas simpler and uh, based on what we're describing here, the, the analogy that comes to mind for me, one that I've used time and again in a bunch of different situations is um, there's a bus that pulls up and the bus says, you know, where it's going. And it says health town. Right. <laughs> and um, there's sometimes I get on the bus and there's been times in my life when I've just been a passenger. I've been the guy at the back um, or I've been the real, you know, a keener touristy guy up at the front sort of looking out the window and all that sort of stuff and then there's other times when I've been driving it and I invite other people to come along with me yeah I think Jiangxi is driving it yeah yeah absolutely and um, I come and go with um, 
what I'm capable of. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to drive. Wah, wah, wah. And other days it's like, get out of the way. Look out. Honk, honk. As I'm driving down the road, you know. I think it's good to be the passenger too. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's benefits to both for sure. Okay, so if that's the core principle, mm-hmm. um, and I think we're talking about martial arts, not driving a bus here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, martial arts principles uh, apply to healing. Um, are there any others? Yeah. So let's say the Dongxi is an essential attitude. You okay. Know, if you don't have that, work on building your personal health team, join your personal health team, and get lots of help. Because if you're not in a place where you can show up in that way, and that's beautiful too, then, you know, from, I guess, from an Aboriginal point of view, now you need a healing. So go and find, uh, you know, a healer or medicine person, you know, or in the modern context, find a really good functional medicine doctor, counselor, acupuncturist, somebody who you can be the passenger at the back of the bus, who's going to get you the inspiration, energy, motivation, and confidence to maybe go to the front of the bus and start asking really good questions. And then when you're ready, drive your own bus. You know, because, I mean, as a clinician, I've been doing my thing 20 years, and 20% of people are ready to drive the bus. Hmm. 80% of people would rather just lie on the back seat of the bus and, you know. Let me know when I get there. Yeah, you know, I need a nap, I need a hug, I need some soup and a break. Right. You know. So we're back to, we're talking about a bus <laughs> in, in terms that, I, I mean, I can understand that. I'm, I'm trusting that the people listening to this podcast can actually get that as well. Um, and that's, I guess, like the, the core principle. Yeah. Um, what would be principle number two, if there was one? So if principle number one is have a really good attitude or at least understand where your attitude is at and know that that is step one. Step two would be um, what I would call is don't block. Mm-hmm. So that's going to take a little bit uh pry apart so you know if you see your typical 1980s karate movie or something there's a lot of blocking going on because it slows down the action so that a person who has very little sense of what a you know physical confidence looks like they can follow the process of you know punching and kicking and stuff when you come to the actual predatory applied combative actual um, pointy end of the stick of martial arts you never block if you're in a conflict situation and another person's coming at you, your instinctual flinch, flinch response to protect yourself because they're coming at you has to turn into a proactive thing where you take whatever weapon, punch, kick, knife, gun, whatever it is, and turn it into something you can use while going after either the opportunity to affect their balance, their spine, their brain, or take away the second weapon, on the other hand, while you're affecting their balance, their spine, their ability to use the brain. Because once they can't think anymore, in the sense of they're overwhelmed with information or, you know, the pain of being hopefully not hurt too badly. I mean, we have the ethic, and what I do is, you know, cause the least possible damage. You know, and that may, it may take 20 years of training to get to the point where someone or someone and his friends could attack you and you could resolve the situation without damaging them too much. But at first, you really have to just mess people up. All right. So again, the idea in, in the martial arts imagery is don't block. <clears throat> something's coming at you assertively, put your hands on it and welcome and in, uh, um, invite the experience, right? Because otherwise you're trying to negotiate with the fact you may actually experience some pain in the next few seconds or have to cause some pain. So if you can welcome the fact that you're now in a high consequence environment, a fight or a really scary diagnosis, you don't want to sit there and block. You know, and, and I don't like to pick on Western medicine more than I 
me too. But and again, I like to call it pharmaceutical medicine. When you go to see a pharmaceuticalist or a medical doctor, they're going to teach you to block because their their training is you have a diagnosis that requires management in terms of anti-inflammatories, antidepressants, antibiotics. They do a lot of anti stuff, and you could say that's kind of like blocking. And sometimes in that context, you need those kind of interventions. But at some point, you're going to have to take the fight or the high consequence environment in your own hands and start applying things to resolve what's going on. So that's kind of principle one, resolve. Principle two, get your hands on solution-minded opportunities, put them into practice until you find the solutions that create the results you're looking for. And that might be going to the gym, doing resistance training. It might be a specific therapeutic diet. It might be 15 supplements you take every day for you know three months to a year. It might be uh, engaging in a regular meditation practice, um, getting outside, sorting out the fact you're unhappy in your relationship. You know, you don't like your job. You've got to figure out whatever it is that your parents told you about you that may not actually be true about you. But you can't do that passively by uh, blocking in the sense of, okay, I'll throw something in that direction and wait and see what happens next. Because then, in the sense of a physical conflict, if you wait for what happens next, they have the initiative, you're going to have to block. The image that comes to mind when you, when you say uh, don't block uh, makes me think of like a bullfighter. Um, the bull charging towards the toreador, mm-hmm. I think that's what they're called. Um, uh, if the bullfighter was just to sort of stand there like a brick wall and the bull was to hit it, um, that would probably... Um, really negatively impact <laughs> the, the poor fella trying to, as opposed to um, taking this red thing and sort of, I'm sure you've seen that before, where they sort of stand aside and they sort of take the energy of the animal and they let it go past them and they swing around so that they come back into another sort of stance where they can invite the bull to come back in again. Yeah, we call that luring as a martial art principle, but in the context of what I'm saying, uh, you would distract it with the red cloth, sidestep, grab it by the horns, throw it on its back, Choke it out, cut it out, make a feast, make some bone broth out of the, the ox. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, feed your friend's family and write a book on nose to tail cooking. Sure. Because, the, the, and I mean that with humor, I'm not actually suggesting we go chop up bowls, but um, I'm just trying to share the attitude of I'm going to go to what's next and what's next and what's next hmm. and come up with what's next because no one's ever got that far with what's next except me because for me, I had to go to, to that what next. Because um, for me, that's what had to happen. Everyone's healing journey is always going to be migratory and unique. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess that's what I'm sort of trying to, again, uh, put it into sort of plain English because that's usually what floats between my ears. <laughs> usually. Um, the, just the, the concept of, you know, uh, uh, don't block is to be more accepting of whatever it is and then working with that um, and carrying that forward to some other kind of resolution as opposed to just putting up the brick wall mm-hmm. yeah uh, okay so you've got two principles there what's principle three um, it's a thing we call post and pivot so um, posting is basically where you bend your knees and try and get your alignment figured out um, either as sort of a so posting is when you bend your knees try and get really good structure um, and when you bend your knees in a biomechanically efficient way which would balance out stability and mobility uh, now you're in a really good uh, stance, if you will, without it being a stance, and your body's ready for movement and or physical exchanges of momentum if someone's going to tackle you or something like that. 
So posting again is bending your knees. And medically, that engages your sacral plexus, the nerves that come out of your spine through your sacrum into the muscles of your lower body. Right? So as long as your knees are bent and you actually feel like you're ready to move or dance or play, interestingly, that you can't do any of those with your knees locked, hmm. at least not well. <laughs> Throw me the ball on my tree, never mind bonk. <laughs> um, you know, as long as you have that post thing, um, your brain is reaching proportionally through the neural pathways of fight or flight in a positive way. So here's an example. Imagery always helps. You and I are standing at a street corner and for whatever reason you're on your iPhone and texting someone and your knees are straight and you're not really aware that there's a car that just blew a tire and is coming straight towards us. Me, because I'm trained properly, I've got my knees bent because I'm at an intersection and I was just walking and I always have my knees bent when I'm walking so I'm going to have my knees bent and I pick you up and throw you three feet and get out of the way because I'm four times faster kinesthetically than a person with their knees locked because I'm already neurologically engaged in the muscles of instinctual response to a consequential environment, or I'm ready. And that's what posting is, is getting physically ready. And if you do that long enough and make that the go-to thing for almost every fun thing or dangerous thing you do, you're going to be measurably more effective. Okay, so um, if I'm sick, I'm doing air quotes here, yeah. uh, I've got, I don't know, some kind of gut thing going on, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like to be in the post position with a sore gut? Um, sitting, standing, walking. I'm dropping into a place within myself where I'm ready to change. And I'm ready to engage and embrace and uh, grow as a person and try new things in a place of being ready. Right? It's, it's an attitude shift that's embodied. Okay, so it's an attitude thing as, more, as opposed to more of a physical thing. Both. And interesting, just a little weird geek aside, the word attitude can mean how you think and feel or how you orientate yourself in space, like the attitude of a plane or a spaceship. So we actually have a practice called standing meditation. Uh, It's a Qigong or Taoist yoga thing where you actually get into a really good biomechanical posture and there's lots of different postures. And then you stand there for 5, then 10, then 15, 20, 30, maybe 45 minutes. And technically you're doing aerobic exercise standing still. Okay. And again, the thing is, now your neural pathways, your brain reaches into the world and remembers you as a person who is proportionally in a predatory, ready state for any kind of physical danger. And your brain loves to feel ready for high consequence things. So you're saying the brain feels more alive when it's more um, on guard? Well, I would say ready. Guard is again about blocking. Okay. Right? No, not to say that that's implicitly all it can mean, but I guess I'm going to have to sound like a little bit of an aggressive kind of tough guy in the conversation to keep framing that it's an attitude shift towards saying yes to everything that needs to happen instead of saying I'm not ready or oh no or that's weird or forget it entirely. So until you're in the yes, yes, bring it on, let's play uh, attitude and embodied experience, literally I train people to walk around like a predatory animal. And your knees have to be bent and you have to walk a certain way with your feet. And the more people walk that way is kind of a you know, Qigong or yoga practice. The more time the lizard or reptile brain remembers you as an effective primate instead of somebody who's hoping somebody else in the pack deals with the tigers. And the more the body is actually physically ready to do stuff, the more that affects the 
emotional and spiritual and um, thinking psychological kind of process around health. Yeah, and again, it's an embodied practice. So that's post, and then you have pivot. Okay. So let's say I'm standing here, and I'm gonna look looks like a fighting stance, but there's no stance because you, if you're in a stance, you have to undo the stance to react to anything else. So I'm not suggesting that there's a good stance, but let's just say you're kind of moving towards what would look like a fighting position. So I'm, you know, my feet are balanced for stability and mobility, and I've got my hands moving towards whatever opportunities are mine, because whatever comes at me, it's mine, I'm going to take it away from you, and take everything else away from you, and then deal with the brain. The only way you can be effective uh, once you have post is to have really good left-to-right torsional movement, or what you would call pivot. Part of that is being able to actually create momentum if you're going to hit someone. Because if you're basically your shoulders and hips don't have any left and right, you're kind of hitting someone as if you're tied to a, a piece of plywood. But if you can actually start moving your body left and right through your core muscles, which are the muscles between your pelvis and knees, and your pelvis and ribs, and everything that's going on on the inside, again, you have really, really good control of movement, of momentum, of your range of what's effective. I mean, you can't do very much with what's behind you, but... Um, if you've got pivot and someone grabs you from behind, you can change the dynamic very quickly because you can change directions, right? Now, there's a saying we often bring up in, in sort of the military uh, context, which is having your head on a swivel, right? Which is being constantly aware and vigilant to everything around you, right? And that's sort of a, a mental thing. Now, part of that could be defensive in the sense of, oh, no, there's bad guys. Or I'd say, what's my next opportunity slash target slash opportunity for success, learning um, better recipe for bone broth, you know, whatever it is that, that's the next thing that you're actually looking for. And again, it's a kinesthetic practice, right? You know, you could stand in your living room, learn a basic, you know, three or four Tai Chi-like moves, and just practice them over and over again in your living room because the back of your brain needs to know you know how to post, and then it needs to know that you know how to work with momentum, right? And an example of that would be... Uh, I'll take this back to the martial arts. You're standing in your living room, you're in a really good posture, and you're doing a bunch of really intense punches in the air, which is not actually a really good idea, but let's just hold that image. Your brain needs to know that you can throw a punch through moving your body through torsion or left and right and recover the momentum of that strike if you miss. Right? And this is a this is a true story, and this is a really cool thing. Um, I've experienced this myself, and almost every one of my students has experienced this. Because if you train punching in the air, you're going to actually learn to throw a lot of energy towards the target and then have to put on the brakes so that by the end of the punch, you haven't broken your elbow or your shoulder by you know throwing all that momentum through your arm, which means you're actually learning to punch and stop your punch before it's actually an effective punch, which is why we don't really recommend punching in the air as hard as you can, you know, because you end up having these nightmares where you're in a fight and you're hitting the bad guy and nothing happens. And that's when your instinctual brain, it's a 10 million year old, primate predator is going, dude, this whole punching in the air breaks thing. Um, I'm not sure that's going to work, man, because like you're, you're, you're making yourself worse at hitting people. <laughs> right? But again, it's, if it's just sort of a, a, a funny truism that um, if you can't deal with momentum left to right and don't have the strength in the core of your body to be very, very effective, you're going to be less effective. And, and this is also true Let's say you're hitting a big heavy bag. You can only hit a bag as hard as the muscles between your knees and ribs. Right? I could have really big, you know, strong, tattooed, scary-looking guns or arms, as they say, you know, in the sense of big biceps or whatever. 
and uh, I could have no coordination between my knees and ribs, and my brain will automatically limit how much force I could put into a punch so I don't break the, the mechanics of my pelvis and, and lumbar spine and all of those muscles, because they have the least amount of strength to deal with impact. And that, that response to um, your one's inability to have that strength mm -hmm. um, is the body basically saying, you're not capable of doing this, is that what I'm hearing you're saying? Yeah. Like the body says, listen, you got big, strong arms. Yeah, okay, great. But if you go to punch that thing, um, I'm only going to give you so much uh, oomph behind that because otherwise you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah, it's like a bank account of oomph. Okay. You know? and, 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 and all of these ideas of, that you're talking about, about you know, the physical movement of the body. And, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really quiet as I'm listening to you because I'm thinking, okay, he's talking about martial arts, but then I'm also thinking that oscillate really lays over top easily to everything that I think about around health. If I'm not flexible and willing and able to uh, stop and pivot and be, you know, for, for lack of a better wrong about something and then go into a different direction and keep on going, you know, the health journey doesn't go anywhere. There's a flat tire in the bus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, mechanically, if you develop core strength, uh, especially lateral or sort of left to right core strength, um, you're giving your brain brain food around the context of pivot, right? Because, I mean, physical practice, I mean, I'm sorry if you don't like exercise, listener, but it's really, really important to be fit and, you know, keep your body active. And if, you know, you need to start from the floor crawling around, at least that's what you're doing is getting started through the body. But the body is a mirror for the mind and, and our uh, memory of ourselves, which equals confidence. So if your memory of yourself is someone, I do 10 minutes of core training every day, you know, I, my tables and planks and you know all that kind of stuff your body becomes that person and you as a person build that attitude right i'm a person who's coming from my core values and beliefs about life now some people it's mind first body second other people it's body first mind second um, some people it's kind of like left foot right foot left foot is body right foot is mind and you're only going to get somewhere by a little bit of body a little bit of mind in, in the sense of mindset right but as long as you're doing what works for you you're not being passive, you're feeling ready, you've got post, you've got pivot, off you go. Um, okay, so um, I'm on this journey, um, and like most things that I've done in and around my health, um, stuff comes up. <laughs> like, what do, I, what do I do with my, my disposition or my emotional health or my kind of um, way of thinking? I mean, is there, what's number four on your list? Has that got anything to do with? Yeah, number four, I'm, I apologize, it's gonna take a couple of minutes um, for me to frame what this opportunity is because it's a very precise thing. So I'm gonna invite you to go on a little two minute journey with me into what applied combatives training looks like. So primarily what we do is we train people to move with instinctual reflexes that you had for millions of years and they're way more actually effective and potent than anyone from the outside of your body can teach your body what to do. So that means we have to do a lot of stuff that isn't very organized in the sense of this is how you do this punch, this is how you deal with you know a gun or whatever. So there's a, a specific kind of training environment. So imagine that you're in a room with say 10-15 people and you're all kind of milling around kind of like a mosh pit, and you're not allowed to touch each other, but you're supposed to try and get as close to each other as you can. And then, depending on what we're training, one, two, three of these people may or may not randomly attack you, 
like in the sense of you get attacked once and then you get, you're milling around again or roaming around again and then somebody else attacks you, maybe they attack you with a, a wooden knife or a plastic gun or uh, sometimes you have uh, you attack you attack by a piece of food and the food isn't actually an attack so you have to learn to deal with an attack that isn't actually attacks so you don't just punch everybody in the throat right oh pizza thanks you know so you have to actually learn to be completely present once you can do that kind of stuff then you're in a room you know milling around roaming as close as you can with people and you're going to be attacked once and then the next guy who's you know get Anthony three seconds after you know you know Jeremy attacks him and then Fred's gonna attack him and then you attack him and you're gonna have three people come at you in the space of 10 seconds and you have to shut down guy number one guy number two guy number three shut down can be whatever you want it to be but let's just say that they can't play anymore for a little while so that would be a fairly high consequence environment and you're not told in any way what to do you just have to deal with it instinctually and most people have some training and sometimes that's good sometimes that gets in the way so you can picture that People, if you're listening, try and do your best to picture yourself in that environment. What inevitably happens for everyone, man or woman, young or old, um, that happens more often with people with a lot of actual like traditional martial martial arts experience, but it happens to everybody at some point, is the part of your mind that thinks you can think this out is going to get you into a place at some point in the trajectory of training, and that's sort of mid-training for what we do. You're going to jam up. Because your ability to trust your instincts compared to your ability to trust your training is at conflict with itself. And you're going to fail over and over again at whatever level of insanity that we put people through. Because at one point you have to have this experience. You're not trained until you've had a breakdown. And I've seen, I don't know how many grown men and women turn green, literally green, from frustration and rage and futility and fall on the floor and cry and shake because, I mean, you're a cop, you're a prison guard, you're special forces, you're a kung fu teacher, whatever, and you come to realize you're going to die because there's something in your willingness to break through your conditioning that you can't. There's something willingness... Sorry, say that again. There's something... Something in your conditioning, right, with respect to your willingness to move out of your conditioning that you can't change. You're just stuck. Right? I mean, I mean, I don't know how I many hundreds of people I've cuddled on the floor, a little me, the six foot, you know, <laughs> you know, or Navy SEAL or something. Okay, buddy, we're just going to have a little moment, hug it out. Because there is definitely a brotherhood, sisterhood, camaraderie when you're getting into that of a high consequence environment. It's very intimate in a very unique way. Anyway, so once the person has accepted the fact and had their little freak out on the floor turning green, I mean, people turn green like the Hulk. It's not a, it's not a metaphor. People turn green. Um, and they, they get up off the floor and, you know, deal with the, whatever shame or embarrassment they have for having a bit of a tantrum, um, which is the beautiful thing about this. I mean, it's not just, oh, we're tough people. We punch and kick each other. Then we take the person back into that environment maybe one tiny increment less dangerous than the thing they can't deal with. And we ask them to do something really, really, really weird. And this is principle number four. It's called applied boredom. Applied boredom. You're going to be in this room with 15 people, 10, whatever, 20 people. We're all milling around really close to each other. And at any point, one, two, three of these people, knives, guns, empty hand, I don't know, garbage lid, whatever, get gotta be creative. And they're gonna come at you. And if you don't take them out, it's you know, back to the drill, back to square one. 
But what happens to people when they've had the breakdown experience, and we all welcome them back into the drill and you know pat them on the shoulder and do our best to make it really hard for them, but not harder than they can deal with. And their job is to apply the experience of boredom. Okay, I have my own ideas of what boredom is. <laughs> so you're walking around in a room in post and pivot, and there's all these people around you, and any one of them who's close enough to you to actually mess you up might. And if you're in a place of anticipation and you know you're rehearsing what you think you're going to do, you're going to die. Whereas if you're in post, you're in pivot, you're ready, you're instinctual, and you're bored with the fact, it's almost always a basic combination, you know, hook, jab, duck, and shoot, kick, you know, whatever. Honestly, man, we have maybe nine weapons, and most people start with their hands. And it's either strikes or grabs or something, you know. I'm bored because really, I mean, I'll just take the first one away from you and the second one away from you and bonk you over the head with your other one and kick you somewhere so that you fall down. Well, I deal with friend number two and I'll probably drop him right onto your diaphragm because then you're choking onto your diaphragm for eight seconds and that's you for, you know, eight seconds. I got you know, time to, you know, call my girlfriend. Well, I deal with guy number three and, you know, or whatever. Because the idea is your anticipatory... Um, what we call apprehension, is stopping you from actually being instinctually ready. So if, if I'm getting what you're saying, um, my ability to be present is compromised by my rational mind looking at the situation, saying, okay, uh, that guy over there has probably got a gun, that guy over there, like if I'm always you know, hypervigilant mm -hmm. for what's going on, um, at some point I'm going to short circuit. Yeah. So I'm going to go into the word apprehension in a moment, but when it comes to, well, how does this apply to me dealing with my arthritis or my colitis or my fibromyalgia or whatever, if you're applying those first three principles and then you've got your day-to-day -day stress, the humdrum of your commute and your job and your, you know, electricity bill, um, your overuse of social media or whatever it is, it's those are little boring problems. I mean, you don't need to go into apprehension about the consequence of being late on your visa bill because right now you have an autoimmune disease that may kill you. So maybe let's frame where our our, uh, our confidence need to be applied, right? Because if all the boring stuff is actually now effectively boring to you, there's an excitement that comes up around. Well, maybe I will go and you know take that. Um, you know, 10-day meditation retreat, or I will go to that doctor in that other city who's got this great reputation and seems to know what they're doing, you know, or I will, I will invest so much money in, in a sort of step-by-step -step guided program that's going to nurture me and educate me in what I need to know to actually take care of what I need to take care of, because inevitably you're going to have to act more assertively. So I'm just going to very quickly talk about the word apprehension, because I think on every third podcast, we're going to get into some really weird semantic fun things because language is powerful. So the word apprehension comes from aprehensile. And as primates, we have prehensile limbs. And some of us used to have prehensile tails, which means you can wrap it over a branch and take a nap and not fall to the jungle floor and be eaten by large cats. So aprehensile means you're holding on to the, the branch for dear life and recognize that at some point you're going to lose the strength of your grip and the consequence is going to be you're going to fall onto the forest floor and as a primate that means your cat food. 
right? And in the next podcast, I'm going to probably have to say cat food about 500 times. But anyway, um, apprehensile or apprehension is the belief that holding on is more adaptable than climbing, right? So if we grasp tightly until we're exhausted, the consequence is going to be cat food. If we learn to be assertive and move up the tree to a better position, um, then we can take our nap. But that's what the word apprehension means is, I am at my wit's end and the consequences are dire. So when that comes back to me thinking about my health, if I'm rigidly holding on to some belief or idea that, um, I mean, you hear it all the time, uh, people label themselves, you know, I have this, I have that, therefore I am this. Um, I've met uh, a good friend of mine, here's a good example, a good friend of mine has a CP, a cerebral palsy, um, to talk to him on the phone you wouldn't know it, to meet him you wouldn't know it, he just so happens to be in a wheelchair, um, and he's been in a wheelchair um, since, uh, since birth. Um, and how CP manifests for him um, is hilarious. Well, he's just a he's just a you know thirty something year old guy. He's a bit of a goof. He likes his life. He likes um, cracking jokes. He likes going to wrestling events. He's got a car that's I don't know tricked out so that he can actually race it. Uh, it's an old postmobile kind of thing. You know that's a different version of CP compared to he's introduced me to other people that he knows who have the same affliction, disease, or whatever it is, um, who might as well be a chunk of granite. They're um, just so different in their thinking. Um, but I think it, it stems from, um, you know, Steve's environment, his mm -hmm. attitude, and how he was brought up, and all that sort of stuff. But when you talk about being rigid or um, uh, apprehensive about something, um, and not being flexible enough to change, um, that's not a good thing. Um, not with respect to chronic complex autoimmune diseases that may get more complex for sure. And if I ever get, if Steve ever hears this, way to go Steve, man, you rock. <laughs> Steve may just hear this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, we've got um, four core martial arts principles that, that apply to healing. Um, Give me a quick recap. What are they as well? Um, Find a sense of resolve, the Zheng Qi thing. Right. Because until you're willing to do the masculine kind of Clint Eastwood thing or the more feminine, um, mysterious engagement thing, you're not really ready to move into the present reality that you're in, whatever that is. And if you're not, then just get some help until you are, because you don't need to be there, but eventually you're going to need to be there. And then when you get there? So the second thing is don't block, right? Which means just maintain a constant sense of kind of problem solving by being assertive. Third one, uh, the idea of post and pivot, which physically is about you know getting your, your body's memory of itself to be more about feeling physically ready for conflict, sports, dancing, play, whatever, because your knees are bent. And again, mentally, that's the same attitude, which is, okay, I feel ready, and I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm going to make that, you know, next thing, a um, thing I'm present to. Pivot is uh, the next thing you have post and pivot, which is trying to maintain it a, a 
peripheral awareness for opportunities, potentially dangerous, but mostly opportunities, as well as physically being aware that the more engaged and uh, dynamically strong and flexible your core is, um, the more your brain remembers itself as an effectively adaptable body, right? Because it's all about the mind-body connection. And again, the fourth one is learning to apply boredom by pro prioritizing the things that you're actually going to allow to stress you out. Because if you survive 15 years of paying your bills barely on time, that's boring now. You know, don't worry about that right now. You know, bring bring your problem solving, your, uh, you know, sense of apprehension and challenges to the real challenges, you know. As you're describing all that, summarizing what we've been talking about for the past half hour or so, actually it might be more than that, um, it makes me think of uh, training that I've had that relates but isn't martial arts, it's improv. Uh, improv, and for the sake of our listeners, Michael's nodding his head <laughs> because he gets that. Improv training is um, the idea of don't block. I mean, that's the term in improv. So if, if I'm like, well, it's a really lovely day we have here. Oh, look, what a pretty turtle that is. You would actually say, yes, it is a lovely turtle. Oh, look, I think it's got a tattoo on its back. Oh, yes, it's got a tattoo of a sailor on its back. And we just keep on agreeing with each other. I would love to do some improv with you. It would kick ass. It would be so fun. <laughs> you know, that, that, it would. That, that whole concept of being available and open to the conversation going forward, as opposed to improv, it's like, oh, what a lovely turtle. Look, it's got a tattoo. What turtle? I don't see any turtle. All of a sudden, conversation goes right. and falls flat. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because, I mean, I'm somewhat embarrassed that uh, giving this information out or talk or lecture or whatever gazillion times it really is just about improv yeah so maybe i'll just rewrite the whole thing so you just never mind the martial arts stuff <laughs> everyone go take an improv class <laughs> well there's there's and off we go. so this, okay. this should be a podcast we should do a podcast on just improv and the benefit like of what it is to try not try to just risk being a stand-up comedian just go out there and yeah do your funniest things there you go folks google my name and you can look for my stand-up bit on YouTube. I've got <laughs> eight and a half minutes of, of stand-up. We should, um, well, let's put a link to that in, in the show notes. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily... <laughs> Get to know Anthony. <laughs> anyway, so, okay, so not blocking. Getting back to, to, to improv. We're not blocking. You're, you're carrying the conversation forward because that's what actually carries the drama, if you will, the comedy forward in an improv situation. Post and pivot means you got to be flexible and willing to... Um, uh, just move with whatever it is that's actually happening on stage or in the uh, improv environment. Um, and applied boredom is um, not going up there with like the preconceived idea that you're already funny, but going up there with the idea of like, oh, I'm on a sailing ship right now. We're talking about a turtle with a tattoo on its back. And yeah, learning to ignore the audience a little bit until you can engage them because you've got some momentum. Yeah, and it's ignoring the audience, but it's also ignoring your own ideas of what's going to make something funny. Um, coming to the stage with preconceived ideas about jokes versus being in the flow of the moment of the improv skit allows you to be the most effective improv uh, comedians that I've ever seen are the people who are just plain simple, just like every day. They just sort of like, blah, blah, blah. They just carry on. They just flow with the whole thing. They don't, um, 
they don't come up and make stupid voices or you know like they don't, they don't throw extra funny stuff in there they're just themselves yeah yeah well, there's a show uh whose line is it anyway mm-hmm. actually this is a bit of an aside and we got to wrap this up but when I have patients that are really, really in trouble and the Jung Chi thing, they're not even ready for ready. I say, go on, say YouTube and make a playlist of stand-up comedians or whose line is it anyway. Uh, make another playlist of music you would actually consider singing to. And then a playlist of uh, spiritual teachers, mentors, you know, people who are really good at you know, informing you of, you know, how to be in the situation you're in. An example comes to mind, uh, a kind of colleague, Gabor Mate. Uh, Canadian doctor who's written a couple of books and his thing now is he just does these amazing you know public speaking things which become these amazingly viral YouTube videos because the guy's incredible at um, empathizing and, and carrying people through any kind of process where they're stuck so yeah it's all about improv and the idea with those playlists is if you're having a bad day you come home press play whichever the playlist you need the most turn up the volume do some exercises, lie on the floor, take a nap, clean your house, whatever you need to do, but allow yourself to either be entertained to the point where you're laughing outrageously, you're singing out loud, or you're being nurtured and, and sort of walked through whatever wisdom you need to keep going. Sounds like a pretty um, great prescription. Yep, that's my YouTube prescription. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Dr. Michael Smith, uh, TCM and YouTube doctor. <laughs> well, maybe not. So this wraps up uh, another podcast uh, with Dr. Michael Smith. Uh, the topic today, how martial arts principles apply to healing and in brackets, uh, improv, YouTube, <laughs> and everything else. Uh, I'm Anthony Sano. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this has been Fusion Health Radio. You can check us out on Facebook. There's links to the website. Um, and Anthony doing improv. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing improv. Uh, this has been episode four. What are we into for the next podcast? The primal paradigm. That's got me curious already. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting way to look at how to get well. Okay, great. Well, uh, until next time, folks, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in episode five. Cook well, eat well, and be well. Have a great day. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.